Last week we went over a list of sins to avoid listed in Ephesians 4. Well, we pick up today with even more on the list, so please open your Bible if you have one with you. Ephesians 4 for the remainder of the chapter, verses 29 to 32. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The list continues. And as we said last week, whenever God forbids something as sin, there's the opposite that we should do. And when he commands something that is good, he necessarily forbids the opposite of that, and we see that today. Christianity is practical, not just theological. It applies to everyday life. Much of the Bible concerns what we call ethics, which means how do we know what is morally right to do it and what is morally wrong not to do? And that applies to what we think, what we do, and even what we say. But how do we know what is right and wrong? Do we simply follow the polls and what is culturally correct? What about postmodernism, saying you make your own morality or your own inclination or what is culturally correct or what is cool, what your friends and the media say? Or what is simply legal? People will say, well, if it's legal, it must be right. There's no punishment, so let's do it. No, all of those are wrong. The only way we know what is morally right and wrong is from God. And God has given us the standard in his holy Bible. So let's look at some of these things that God forbids and that by reverse logic what he commands. Verse 29 says, let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth. Word corrupt just doesn't apply to dishonest politicians although it does. The word literally in the Greek that Paul used, it means rotten. And we've all seen something that is rotten. I was once hunting out at the Daniel Ranch in South Texas, and I came across the carcass of a deer that had been shot and wandered off, and the hunter didn't find it, and it it had rotted after about 10 days. It wasn't wasn't a pleasant sight. Matthew 7, 17, Jesus talks about a corrupt, rotten tree. Matthew 13, 48, he talks about rotten fish that stink. But according to Matthew 15, Jesus said corrupt words come from a corrupt heart. That's where the problem is. And we can't just simply take mouthwash and wash out our mouths. You know, mouthwash can be good if you have bad odor, but that's not going to cleanse your heart. Or sometimes mothers will wash their children's mouth out with soap if they find them using a bad word. 
I still remember my mama doing that to me, and I can still taste it. But that's not going to cleanse the heart or our vocabulary. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin, not just from our mouth, but in our heart. Not only that, the Bible says here, don't let any corrupt word proceed from your mouth. Dirty jokes, lies, slander, none of that is appropriate. It's all corrupt. Jesus said we will have to give an account to God for every word we've spoken. Think about that, every word. He said that in Matthew 12, 36. Even words nobody else heard, words that were unuttered, you thought them and nobody heard them, or maybe you're by yourself and you say a certain word that you know is wrong. You say, well, nobody heard it. God heard it. What if someone else accidentally heard it and you didn't know it? That happened to me once. Some of our men here go and do open-air evangelism and they preach to people that'll listen. I used to do a lot of that when I was in seminary, and I remember once preaching to, I guess, about 50 people and answering their questions, and afterwards, someone came up and says, Kurt, I heard you preach on the radio the other day. And I said, I wasn't on the radio. They said, yes, you were. Last week when you were preaching in the open air, someone from the radio station came and recorded you and played it on the radio, and I happened to hear it. God's got a tape recorder. He's recording everything we say and even what we think. How would you feel if some of your words or thoughts were played back in front of this church, in front of your family? You'd be embarrassed. God is listening. So let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth. Now here's the opposite that we should do. It says, but instead what is good for edification? The opposite of rotten words would be fresh words, life-giving Pure words, such as words of encouragement to someone, words of love, appreciation, sympathy, compliments, words of thanksgiving to them. And therefore, it says here, it'll edify the person. That's what the word edification means, to build up. Rotten words tear down, and sometimes people do that. Like in a marriage, where parents will tear down their children and say, you're no good. I once actually heard a mother say to her son, I wish we had never had you. That wounded that child. But it goes both ways. Children will curse their parents. I heard one grown man say to his father, he had lost his temper and said, I hate you, I hate you, I, I wish you were dead. That's not building up, that tears down. Think before you speak. And apply the golden rule. Speak as you would want to be spoken to. Look at next at verse 30 before he gets back to the list in verse 31. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Who's the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is not an angel. The Holy Spirit is God. It says the Holy Spirit of God. He is divine. He's a member of the Holy Trinity. He's personal. He's not impersonal like wind or power like some people think. He's personal. He speaks. He feels. He can be grieved. But also the Holy Spirit is holy. Whenever you think of the Spirit, always think Holy Spirit. He is the one that takes the holiness of God and applies it to us. He convicts us of our unholiness. 
He's the one that can save us. And the first thing he does is he convinces us of sin. And then he gives us new life. And then he gradually gives us holiness, sanctification. He is the Holy Spirit. And being holy, he can be sinned against in several ways. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.29 says the Spirit can be insulted. Matthew 12 says he can be blasphemed. Acts 7.51 says people resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 5 verse 3 says some people even lie to the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.9, they tempt the Holy Spirit and they grieve him. Grieve means to make someone sad and to mourn. Now, I follow debates amongst theologians and there been a, there's been a debate for the last 10 or 12 years. And the question is this, does God have emotions? And there are three answers that people suggest. The first one says, yes, since we are made in the image of God, we have emotions. God has emotions exactly like we have. Second answer says, no, God does not have emotions because emotions are weaknesses we are humans that have weaknesses and we fly off the handle and things like that. God doesn't do that. Therefore, God does not have emotions. And they say it's kind of like the Greek philosophy of Stoicism. God is unemotional. He is all wisdom and all power, but no emotions. I don't believe either of those two. I follow the third one that says, yes, God does have emotions, but not exactly like we have. Because God is not a man. He doesn't have weaknesses. Yes, God has emotions, like wrath. That's an emotion. Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. He has joy, Luke 15. Three times Jesus told a story that ends in happiness, and it's talking about the happiness of God when even one sinner repents. God is joyful. He is happy. That's an emotion. But it says here also grief. Genesis 6.6 6, Right before the flood of Noah, it says God was grieved when he saw the sinfulness of all mankind. He says, I'm going to flood the whole world, destroy them all except for Noah and his family. Now let me teach you a little bit of Greek and Hebrew. In both those two biblical languages, there are two words that are often translated as repented. For example, in that verse, Genesis 6, 6, it says, like in the King James Version, it repented the Lord. And the word there means it grieved him. It's not the other Hebrew word that means he turned around. And it's the same thing in Greek. For example, it says Judas repented, but he didn't turn from sin. He grieved that he had betrayed Jesus. God doesn't turn around because he is perfect, but he does grieve at human sins. So God does have emotions like grief, joy, love, wrath. But to be precise, he has emotions, but not passions. What's the difference? Passions are emotions that are out of control. Like a teenage girl that falls helplessly in love and falls helplessly out of love. Helplessly. Or when a person is angry and is out of control, loses the temper. He needs to chill out. In other words, he's passionate in emotions that are overwhelming. For example, there's depression that is more than simply the blues or sadness. It's an overwhelming 
thing that you cannot get out of. So there's a difference between mere emotions and passions. God has wrath, but he doesn't lose his temper. He loves, but it's a wise love. He's not giddy and falls in love that's overwhelming. God has perfect self-control over his emotions. As three or four of you may remember, before I became your pastor, I met with Gary Catherwood and Steve Bowen. You remember that, Gary? We met for 11 hours. They interviewed on me about becoming the next pastor, and I interviewed them too. We went over our church constitution with a fine-tooth comb, and I came to two words, and I said, I can't agree to that. And they looked at each other, and they said, what is it? And I said, well, it says here, God is all-wise, all-powerful, without this, without a body, without emotions. I said, I think you meant without passions. And they said, what's the difference? And I said, God has emotions, but he doesn't have uncontrollable passions. And so they decided to amend the Constitution and change the wording. God has emotions, but not passions. First Timothy 5 says he is ever blessed, and the word there is makarios, which means he's always happy, nothing disturbs that. And the best explanation I've heard, bear with me theologically, this is important, within himself, within the Trinity, he is perfectly happy. Nothing grieves him, nothing affects him. But in his relationship to us, He can be angry, he can be grieved. In fact, the Bible says when he sees sin, he's angry with the sinner. He is disgusted by that sin. And the verse here says he is grieved by it as well. Now here's a practical lesson that we derive from this verse. We imitate God as we think God is. If we think God is holy, we will worship him as holy. When we know he's loving, we will love him in return. But if God is emotionless, our relationship to him will be emotionless. Consequently, our worship will be dry. It may be theologically correct, but it will be emotionless. And I've been in churches where the pastor says, God has no emotions and their worship is as dry as sand. That's not the way it should be. We should worship God with holy emotions. On the other hand, there are those that say God has emotions just like us. There's no self-control. You've been in churches like that where it becomes a three-ring circus with emotions running wild, doing silly things. So you see, there are practical applications of our view of God's emotions. We should worship God with joy and love and humility. Back to the text, it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He is grieved by our sins. And I looked it up in the book of Proverbs, the word grief. And it's often used of how children grieve their parents when they disobey them. The parents love them, but they're grieved. Proverbs 17, 25 says, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Disobedient children of whatever age cause their Parents, to weep. No doubt mothers in this very church have wept over a disobedient prodigal child. Or a father. Years ago I heard a mother say, my husband has only wept twice since we got married 40 years ago. 
when his mother died and when his sons rebelled against him. That can break a parent's heart and they grieve. In the same way, we cause our Heavenly Father to grieve when we sin. Proverbs 10.1 says, A foolish son is a grief to his mother. Does this touch the conscience of anybody here? You children, when you disobey mama or daddy, that hurts them because they love you. If they didn't love you, they wouldn't care. They love you, and when you say something wrong to them, when you lose your temper, when you disobey them, That causes them to grieve. It hurts them. Maybe some of you children need to go home and apologize to your parents. And I'm not just talking about little children. What about grown-ups here? Some of you are estranged from your parents. Maybe you should phone them up and say, Dad, I'm sorry. Mom, I'm sorry. It's never too late to apologize If that's the case, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular here, but if that's the case with you, and you're already, let's say, grown up, middle-aged, older, and your conscience reminds you you're a grief to your parents, get right with them before they die. Because I've led funerals where someone is crying uncontrollable and said, Mama's gone. I never apologized to her. Mama, forgive me. But it's too late and they have to live with that. Do it now. If you've ever grieved your parents, apologize to them and mean it. Now, if that's the case with our human relations, how much more with the Holy Spirit? Your sins have grieved the Holy Spirit. It says here the Holy Spirit that redeemed you, that loves you, that indwells you. Have you ever thought that when you repent, you need to apologize to the Holy Spirit. Do it today. And the opposite is, instead of grieving him, cause him to rejoice by apologizing, by repenting, by being saved, and by obeying the Holy Spirit. That causes joy in the heart of the Holy Spirit. It says here, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He mentioned this sealing back in chapter 1, verse 13. Seal was a mark of ownership, like uh, well, like the old cowboys at the Daniel Ranch, we used to brand cattle. I think that at the Andrus Ranch, they don't use a hot iron. Sometimes they use an ice-cold one, but then they want to save that leather, so what they do is they put a little thing in the ear of the cattle. But either way, it's a mark of ownership. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a mark of ownership, that we belong to him. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, you do not have the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. We've been redeemed by Jesus at the cross. It's been applied to us by the Holy Spirit at conversion. And Romans 8 says, The full redemption of our body is yet future when we're raised again from the dead. That's what it means, the day of redemption. Next, look at verse 31. And here's where it gets personal. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These are the sins that grieve the Holy Spirit. It says, put them away. Or the Daniel translation, throw them away. It's garbage. First he says bitterness. Now the Greek word there literally means something that is very sharp, like an arrow or like a pen. 
Some words are like that. They cut like a knife. And it says that in the book of James. It says that the tongue is that. Have you ever noticed the tongue is kind of shaped like a knife or a sword? And it can cut. Have you ever had someone say something to you and you say, well, that cuts my very heart like a knife. That's what it says here. Put it away from you. And you can't simply say, well, sticks and stones may hurt my, break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words can hurt sometimes more than sticks and stones. Words can really hurt and cut deep. So what God says is don't say that. Sometimes people hurt deliberately and other times inadvertently. And they say, well, I was just joking. Yeah, but maybe it hurt that person and you went too far. Next, he says, put away wrath and anger. We mentioned that last week. Interesting that he repeats it. Wrath means that explosive volcano where a person just explodes and then often it blows away. The other kind that's mentioned here is kind of the kind that's always seething under the surface. It goes on and on and on. But that explosive thing is... It's like a fire, like the wildfires out in Canada or Hawaii we've seen recently. It's out of control and it does damage. And people say, well, it's just words. But look at what happened after those fires in Hawaii. All these buildings burnt down. Words can be like fire that can hurt someone and break a relationship. Put away wrath and anger, especially when it's out of control. And that leads us to the next one, clamor. What's that? That's when anger and wrath and words of bitterness become yelling, even screaming, such as in a loud argument between a husband and wife or parents and children or someone at work. Why do people do that? It's because emotions rise so high, instead of using facts and logic and compassion, they think they can win the argument by simply raising their voice higher and higher and higher, thinking... Not even thinking, but feeling. Whoever is loudest wins the argument. The other one will have to back down. It's all wrong. So when logic fails, we turn to shouting, yelling, screaming. My dad used to say, son, when a man is wrong and won't admit it, he usually gets angry and starts yelling. He was right. But it's not just yelling. It can lead to pushing, punching. And even worse, from the tongue to the fist. That's why you need to nip it and stop it when you first feel those emotions rising up. And sometimes within a family, they start yelling, husband and wife, children, and the neighbors here may even phone the police. A member of our church is a police officer, and he says, every week we get called to domestic disputes reported by the neighbors. What do neighbors hear from your family? Clamor? Put it away, the Bible says. But it's not just the neighbors. As I said earlier, God hears us. When nobody else could, God hears that yelling, that screaming, those threats. God hears that. So Paul here says, put it away from you. Throw it away. Now, what's the positive alternative? Reason with the person. When there's a problem, don't raise your voice. Don't increase the emotions. 
Reason it out quietly, logically, and compassionately. And say, Lord, there's a disagreement here. I'm tempted to start yelling. Lord, take control of my emotions and this other person. So that instead of increasing the yelling, we become quiet and we turn it over to you, Lord. Lord, help us. Next, the Bible says, put away evil speaking. Literally, the Greek word is blasphemeo, which means to insult. It can mean to blaspheme God, but in the context here, it means to insult another person. You see, these are talking about verbal sins aimed at other people, to insult a person, such as with sarcasm. It can be done in many ways, like making fun of someone's appearance. Children will do that. Children can be very cruel sometimes. Listen to them at the playground and they make fun of someone's appearance. You're ugly or you're fat or you got ears like open car doors. They make fun of someone like that. But adults can do that. Well, you want examples? Just turn on late night comedians. They like to get jokes by making fun of people. It's wrong. Or making fun of someone's intelligence. You're stupid. I've heard people say that. You're stupid. You're you're the dumbest person I've ever met. Well, maybe the person isn't the smartest person on the block, but that's not for you to tell him he or her is stupid. That's evil speaking. Put it away. What should be the opposite? Good speaking. Compliments, for example. Thanking them. Not evil speaking. And then he uses the word malice, which is a general word for badness. It could include enmity, hatred, wanting to hurt someone deliberately. You that are married know that nobody can hurt you as much as your spouse. And you've done something wrong, or maybe you have and the other person has it out for you, and they can wound you more than anybody else. That's wrong. That's malice. But it can also be done intentionally or unintentionally. And sometimes when the argument is over, someone will say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, but the other person knew you did mean it. To say I didn't mean it, that's not an apology. You know how you really apologize? You say, I'm sorry, I meant it, but I'm sorry that I meant it. Please forgive me. And if you apologize, it's up to you to convince the other person You mean the apology and ask the person's forgiveness and say, I'll try not to ever do or say that again. So it's the opposite of malice, goodness, good words, good thoughts, and good actions that prove a good attitude. Now, the best example of avoiding these sins and doing the opposite is our Lord Jesus Christ. He never spoke evil. He never blasphemed and insulted someone. He never clamored. Go through the Gospels and see how Jesus had all the virtues and none of the vices. We come lastly to verse 32. And here's your great positive alternative. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Be kind to one another like Jesus. Kind there means compassionate, gentle, patient. Sympathetic to where another person hurts so that you don't add to the hurt, but you bring comfort to the hurting. Be kind to one another. I'm not sure, but when I was young, they used to have something called Be Kind to Animals Week. Why don't they have a Be Kind to Humans year? 
the year of kindness. We should always be kind. Notice it says to one another. That would apply, for example, to the golden rule. You know the golden rule. You should. Do to others as you want others to do to you. Be kind to others as you want them to be kind to you. It should be mutual. Even with your enemies. Jesus said love even your enemies. And then he says be tender hearted. Not hard hearted. That's the opposite. Be tender hearted. Instead of being stubborn. Now this is an interesting word because you know God inspired a certain Greek word here. And literally it means well earthy. It means good guts. It means a deep deep feeling. Now we would say guts means courage. But to the Greek speakers this word meant a deep feeling from, that you even feel it down in your stomach or in your intestines. That you love very deeply. We would say love someone from the heart. It's a deep feeling, tenderhearted for someone that's hurting, lonely, depressed, elderly. Brothers and sisters, we need to be tenderhearted. There's one man in the Bible that is distinguished for being tenderhearted. There are probably many others, but... There was a little boy that became king, and his name was Josiah. And God used him to bring in a great revival and throw out of the idols. What was special? God says, I saw you when you were young, and your heart was tender. You know, some children have a very tender heart. They, they see a bird with a broken wing, and they cry and say, Mama, fix it. Or someone down the street, an old man is hurting, and they just want to go and comfort that very tender-hearted. Christians need to be tender-hearted and compassionate like Josiah, or better still, like Jesus. How do we get a tender heart? You've heard me use this illustration. To get a tender heart, God has to tenderize us. Now, I'm a bachelor, and I tend to buy the cheapest cut of beef, and when I do, you know what I do? You got that little silver hammer, and I tenderize it, and I turn it over, and I pound it, and I pound it, and I pound it, and it becomes tender. That's how we get a tender heart, by being hurt. And sometimes God has to do that with the silver hammer, but it's for our good. He wants us to be tender-hearted, and we're glad that he does that to us. It says here, be kind, be tender-hearted. And then he says, forgiving one another. Notice again, the one another, like love one another, be kind to one another. Forgiving one another, it's mutual. That means they both have to apologize, they both have to forgive. That is a golden key for a successful marriage. My late parents said, we never turned out the light without apologizing and forgiving one another. But it has to go both ways because sometimes one person apologizes and the other one won't forgive. Or it's the other way around. Now here's a question that sometimes crosses my desk as a pastor. What if that person doesn't apologize? Should I forgive him anyway? And the common suggestion is, well, just go ahead and forgive him. That's not what the Bible says. Look at the text. Forgiving as God forgives us. God forgives us when we repent. He doesn't forgive us without repentance. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. So what do we do? We're to forgive the person like God does. We should offer forgiveness and convince them, I want to forgive you. I want to heal the relationship and mean it. And then wait for that person to repent and apologize and say, I'm glad you did. 
Some of you know what I mean, where you fell out with someone, you argued, and years later, the person phones you up and says, I'm sorry. And you say, I'm sorry too. You forgive one another. But it's both apologizing and forgiveness. And Jesus said to forgive from the heart. But there are some people that are so proud and hard-hearted, they don't forgive. The great John Wesley, 300 years ago, met a British general, and the general said, Sir, I never forgive. And wise old John Wesley said, Well then, sir, I hope you never sin. C.S. Lewis said, Everybody says forgiveness is a wonderful thing until they have something to forgive. Think about it. Now, there are various ways people get around this. One would say, well, I can forgive someone anything except fill in the blank. A preacher friend of mine, a preacher friend of mine said to me, Kurt, I can forgive anybody anything except if they lied to me. And I said, didn't God forgive you your lies? Or if a person says, I'll forgive him or her if he makes it up to me. Is that how God forgives us? Do we make it up to God with penance or good works? No, it should be free forgiveness. Not something that person has to earn. Or a person says, I wouldn't forgive him if he came crawling on his hands and knees. If he came crawling, I'll kick him in the teeth. Or forgive her. Is that how God forgives us? No. God forgives us freely, generously, willingly. Or how about this when a person says, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Now, of course, we'll remember, but when a person says that, I often detect what they mean is, I can forgive, but I'm going to remember this and maybe use it against that person one day. No, that's not true forgiveness. Don't dredge it up again. Or here's another one. A person says, I can forgive, but... I don't want to have anything to do with that person anymore. Is that how God forgives us? When God forgives us, we're reconciled. No longer enemies, we're friends. So you cannot say, well, I'll forgive him or her, but I still don't want to have anything to do with that person. That's not forgiveness. Or if a person just comes out and speaks his peace, he'll say, well, I forgive, but secretly I don't. God knows the condition of our heart. This business of forgiveness is very important. In a family, in a church, in other human relationships. Forgive one another. And it says, as God and Christ forgave you. That's the pattern. Remember how God forgave us. We didn't deserve it. Some people think, well, to forgive means to, well, just overlook it. It's not that big of a thing. Sin is a big thing. And when we sin against another person, it is a big thing. But God is big enough to forgive us. And he says, you forgive as I forgave you. But you say the person doesn't deserve it. We didn't deserve God's forgiveness. He forgave us by grace. Have you learned the principle of showing grace to someone? To love that person, to offer forgiveness, even when they don't deserve it. Because nobody deserves it. We don't deserve it from God. Imitate God. Jesus told a parable... Matthew 18, about a man that owed a huge sum to the king. In fact, in the Greek, it's so large it would take the budget of a whole country to pay off. And yet the king, it says, he freely forgave the man. 
pretty good king. And then the man went out and found a man that owed him maybe just a month's salary. And he didn't forgive him. It says he grabbed him by the throat and threatened him, pay up or you're going to prison, to debtor's prison, you're never getting out. Word got back to the king and said, I forgave you far more and you won't forgive this other person. Hey, soldiers, drag that guy out and put him in prison. The lesson is, and Jesus told the lesson, if we don't forgive another, why should God forgive us? It's even in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors, those that have sinned against us. Look at the verse. God in Christ forgave you. Some translate that as God for Christ's sake forgave you. He forgives us because of Jesus Christ. You could say he forgives us in Jesus' name. To truly forgive is to make up for that person and not to get it out of him. For example, in the last few years, you've been hearing about our president saying, we should have student debt forgiveness. And I don't know if he's trying to win college votes or get, look good in the polls, but it looks good. Forgive their debts. As if to say, they don't have to pay it. Uh, somebody has to pay it. To forgive means somebody has to give for. Look at that. That's not just a pun. To forgive means someone has to give for. You forgive the student debts. Who has to pay? Hard workers. Maybe college graduates that paid off their debt. Or blue collar workers never went to college. Why should I pay for that? God pays for us. We can't say, I will pay it off. God, therefore, you'll forgive me. God says, you could never forgive. You could never pay off your debt to me. We can't say, I'll make it up. You can't make it up. God made it up at the cross. He paid your debt. That's why it says God forgives us because of Jesus Christ. All of our sins. Psalm 103 says, who forgives all of your iniquities. Even those you have committed after you became a Christian. Or if you say, now pastor, I haven't told anybody this, but I once did something really wrong. It was a bad crime and I never got caught. Could God even forgive me that? You know, I remember one lady screaming hysterical said, even God can't forgive me what I did. She used to perform illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade. She said, even God can't forgive me. And I said, God can forgive you anything, lady. Many of the prison inmates have written to me, almost like I'm their father confessor. Dozens have confessed to first degree murder, rape, arson, you name it, they've done it. And some of them have said, can God forgive me? And I tell them about that thief on the cross. It wasn't just a thief. He was an assassin, a terrorist, a murderer, and God forgave him when he was crucified next to Jesus. God forgives all of our sins, the billions of ones that you've done, ones you've forgotten about. And that's the good news of the gospel. If you're not a Christian here today, think about this. God offers to forgive you every single sin you've ever committed in your mind, in your heart, your words, your deeds. All of them totally free. In Mark 2, 5, they brought a man to Jesus and before Jesus healed him, he said to the man, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Wouldn't you love to have heard that say to you? My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven you. From the very mouth of Jesus. 
The story that really moves me is in Luke 7. Jesus came to the house of this hard-hearted, hypocritical Pharisee. And while he was sitting at the table, a woman of the street, a harlot, a whore, came in. And that Pharisee was offended by that she came in and had heard about Jesus who could forgive sins. She got on her hands and knees and wept over his feet with tears. And then she took her hair down and wiped them. What was going on? She was saying, thank you for forgiving me, even me. And Jesus said to Simon, the Pharisee, her sins, which are many, have all been forgiven. And the lesson was, he that is forgiven much, loves much. And he said, daughter, your faith has, forgiven, faith has made you well. You are forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord Jesus Christ offers that same forgiveness to you. He forgives and he keeps on forgiving. He is a forgiving God. Have you been forgiven? If you have been forgiven, forgive others. Let us pray. Father, this is both a convicting and encouraging section of your Bible. Help us to put away these sins that grieve the Spirit. Help us to do and say the right things. And thank you, Father, that you do forgive us because of Jesus. Help us to forgive others and help us to apologize to others. In Jesus' name, amen.